we came up with um, kind of this theme of, of what was accomplished at the cross. And I'm, I'm excited about bringing this word to you today. And I love the way things have kind of built on this crescendo throughout even today, where through the scripture reading and through that beautiful video, you, you get an idea of the narrative for what Jesus did on this day. But I think in order to really do a, a good job of, of, uh, of putting it out there as to what was actually accomplished at the cross, I think what I need to do is actually peel it back a little bit more and go farther back in time. Because this story fits into a grander, a larger narrative. And what happened here has significance because of what has happened long before this time. So we'll go all the way back. We'll go back all the way to the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where God creates the heavens and the earth. And whether you are a believer that he did it in a literal six days, or if he took a long time to do it, either way we can agree that God was creator of everything. And what he did is, is in each segment of his creation, he sat back and he looked at it and he decided, this is good. And it's not like me building shelves. I tend to build like Dr. Seuss where no two angles are the same. And if I look at something that I built, it's like, it's good enough. That's, that's one thing. But when a perfect God uses his perfect rubric to, to measure, assess, and declare that it is good, what that says to me is that the world that he created and, and all of the living things that he had created to live in that world were exactly as he wanted them to be. Now, the only kind of amendment he made is he looked at man and he said, you know, it's not good that man's alone. And so he elaborated and made that creation even better. But what we have at this point is probably the best picture of God's ultimate will for relationship with us. We had God walking with man and woman in perfection, in perfect, harmonious relationship with literally nothing between them, not even clothing in between them. They were in perfect relationship. And so if you ever wonder what God's eternal will is for you, think about the Garden of Eden. And think about Adam and Eve walking and being in relationship with God. And now, we're comfortable with this idea of of God having a will and a plan for our lives, but uh, kind of the the flip side of that is the enemy has a will for our lives as well. And, And the word says he comes to seek, kill, and destroy. And the enemy wants us dead, separated from God and dead in the most horrific, awful way possible. And he wants to drag with us everybody who's attached to us. He wants them affected by our horrific death. And this creator God created us with the freedom to decide who to follow. He gave us free will. There's God's will, there's the enemy will, enemy's will, and he gave us free will. And as a bit of a tangent, I'm convinced that true love, authentic love, has to have at its core. It's an essential ingredient. You have to have free will. God could have created us as these robotic beings who were programmed to raise their arms and say, I love you, Daddy. But that would have meant nothing. That wouldn't have been real love. So he gave us this will, and as we know in the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they chose poorly. And in disobeying, they obliterated this perfection that God had created for them, created for us. 
And it was broken beyond the capacity for human repair. There is nothing that anybody could do in their humanity to fix what was broken. And we see God come down, and, and, and there's this point. We're actually going to read it uh, together. I, I've got it bookmarked in my, my Bible. We're going to read in Genesis 3, shortly after the fall. In fact, in the same chapter where everything gets ruined, all this perfection gets ruined, we see in Genesis 3, God talking to the snake. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Please leave that up just for a second. We see in the same chapter where everything goes sideways, God rolling out his plan. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by this thing that happened. And he rolls out his plan to make things right, to restore relationship. And prophetically, he talks about the day that the serpent's head would be crushed. And and it would be bruised by the heel of, of her offspring. So at this point we have this separation between man and God. And, and sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that he is this old bearded man in a rocking chair in heaven who is distant and disinterested in us. He can feel very aloof. I never know how to say that word. Aloof? Aloof? aloof. I don't know. He's away. And he feels apart from us and, and, and not in relationship with us. And sometimes we get it in our head that, okay, our life is about doing all the good things so we can get closer and closer to God because we desperately want to be with God. And while there's a measure of truth to that, I think it's, it, it's missing something really essential. And that's God's plan to pursue us, to be with us. And we see it first. Uh, he starts to roll out his plan by speaking through his prophets. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the kind of churchy lingo, a prophet is somebody who God would speak to and through. So he, he might speak to Ken, and then Ken would share that word out to others. In fact, God led his people Israel using prophets. He was literally, that's my word for the day, literally their king. They, they existed under this theocracy where God was king until he wasn't, and they chose a, a human king. But that's another story. So we've got the prophets, and I don't want to apply my logic, my thinking to a perfect God, but I think that there was a measure of God's heart that was dissatisfied with the level of relationship between him and his creation. His will for us was to walk with us in perfect relationship with us, and he was still separate. So he made a plan, and and we see in, in Exodus that he made this plan to create what we call the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this mobile meeting place, a tent, where God would dwell. In fact, in Exodus 26, verses 30 to 33, it says this, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that was, sorry, that you were shown on the mountain. Sorry, these glasses aren't doing a good job for this. But, uh, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold and hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So imagine, if you will, we've got this tented area that is commissioned by God. But he's got in that tent this place referred to as the holy of holies. 
This is the holiest place. But between the holiest place and where a, a Levite priest might be practicing was this thick curtain or veil. And it was literally this protective veil. Because as broken people, we cannot be in the presence of a perfect God. It would be like walking on the sun. And so we've got this, this place, but the beautiful part about it is that God himself, his presence came to dwell in the Holy of Holies. And this is just another picture of God pursuing us, wanting to be with us. But we did need this measure of separation and protection because we couldn't fully be with him yet. Now, the, the uh, tabernacle kind of evolved into this eventual temple which followed a similar pattern in the sense that there was a place in it where you had the Holy of Holies and you had the curtain, you had the veil. But it followed kind of the same structure. And this was how God dwelled among us until he, he stepped up his plan again. And again, I'm wrong to kind of put my mind and my way of thinking on God to suggest that he just wasn't satisfied and so he came up with this plan. Because we see this plan was put into motion in Genesis 3, where he said there would be a day when I will make this right, when there will be a bruised heel and a bruised head. And he's, he's, he's prophesied that, and then he sends his son, Jesus, to be born to a virgin, and baby Jesus is born. Remember, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. He was God incarnate, God with skin on, to be with us and among us. And as we know, he he lived his life out, and especially in his adult years, probably his last three years, he assembled a group of men who he would teach the way to. He would disciple, he would show them, knowing full well there would be a time when he would have to go away. He would show them the way. This is the way to walk. And they essentially went on this three-year camping trip together. And Jesus taught them. He modeled right living for them. He did the miraculous. He, he fed thousands of people with a few loaves and fishes. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. All in front of these 12 disciples and, and more. And he alluded every once in a while to the fact that he was going to have to go away. That he was, he was going to be giving his life. They didn't get it until they saw it happen. But before that, we celebrated last week Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, and Jesus, who was born for a very specific purpose, he was born to give his life for us. And he knew exactly what he was doing as he walked Actually, he didn't walk. He rode his colt into Jerusalem. And he knew that he was literally going to his death. And we taught last week, it's important to understand that Jesus was never a victim. He, was, he wasn't a victim of the religious elite. He wasn't a victim of the government at the time. He gave himself as a willing sacrifice in full control of the situation, knowing exactly that was, what was going to happen to him. Um, I was actually just talking with somebody this morning about the beauty of, of one of his final prayers. Remember, he was in the garden, and he knew what was coming. And, and he prayed it just with an intensity where, where blood was literally coming out of his body as, it, it, with that intensity. And he didn't 
really want to go through what he knew he was going to have to go through. But he said, he finished the prayer, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. It's a beautiful picture for us where we can pray to the Father, but we can commit our, the outcome to the Father. Well, stepping back, there's one other thing that I want to kind of identify in this entrance into Jerusalem. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to his death, I don't know if you'll remember, but he, he walked into the temple. And in it, now that we kind of have a better understanding of what this temple is all about, we understand God's presence and purpose for that temple, that his presence was there. This was a special place. He looked around, he saw that it had turned into a marketplace. And Jesus was furious. And I think he was furious for a couple of reasons. First, that's not the intent of this temple. This place was meant to be the dwelling place of God, a place of worship. But also these people who were selling the, the animals for sacrifice and making huge profits, they were actually putting a barrier between the people who were coming to seek God and God himself. And it was a financial barrier. If they couldn't afford to buy these animals in order to have their sins forgiven, they they weren't permitted to come in. And so Jesus was furious, and he would not have it. And he removed the barrier between us and the Father. And I think that's important. It said this in Luke 19, verses 45 to 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, as we've read in Scripture, and as we saw in the video, Jesus was arrested. He was tried, and he was convicted, and he had to drag his cross up the top of the hill where he was nailed to it. Even though he was a perfect man, never sinned, there was no crime that could legitimately be held against him. He gave himself to be a sacrifice for us. And I don't want to skim over all of those parts, but I really, I think to, to come to this point that I'm trying to make, I need to skip to the part where he says, it is finished. And it was actually when we were meeting with Kyle and, and Pastor Brent from Cornerstone, Brent gave, us, gave me some, some language. This is important that he said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is finished, dot, 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 when I come back and I rise from the dead and I defeat death. He said, it is finished. He did it. What he came to do, he did. So it's important for us to understand what what actually happened, what was accomplished at the cross. What did he do? And if we... Wait, I didn't hear what he said. (laughs) It's probably the perfect thing. I wish I would have thought of that. Um, We see this in John 19, 30. He says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then we see shortly thereafter in Luke, we see what happened when Jesus had given his life up. If we can go to the next slide. Luke 23, verses 44 to 45 says this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. When we ask ourselves, what was it that Jesus did? What did he accomplish at the cross? Well, we know the significance of that curtain 
We know why it was there. It was there for our protection. Because we couldn't be in, we couldn't get that close to the Father. He was too perfect. We were too broken. But what was accomplished at the cross was that Jesus, by giving his life for us, by shedding his blood for us, that paid the price, covered over our iniquities, and gave us this protective measure so that we could once again be in right relationship with the Father. We now had access that had been denied for all these years because of our inadequacies and our brokenness. Jesus paid the price and made it so that we could be in relationship with the Father again. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to pray. But I, 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 there's a lyric in one of the songs we're about to sing that makes me emotional every time. When he talks about the veil being torn. And it's that moment I remember what he did, what was accomplished at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have proven yourself to be trustworthy. For those of us who have walked in faith for, for many miles, uh, we've seen your faithfulness acted out over and over again. You've proven yourself to be worthy of our trust. And so, Father, it, it should be reasonable that we would have trusted your plan from the point of Genesis when you, when we, when you said you had a plan. When there was something that you were going to do And in those centuries in between, we should have known that you would make good on your promise. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we look back at what you did, what your son did when you gave your son to come to earth, to be born as a baby, to grow up to be a man and teach us all these amazing things, and then eventually give his life on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are omnipotent, you're able to do whatever, but that you chose to pursue us and to love us and to be with us. Father, we thank you. We remember what it is that you did on the cross, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.